kind of songs were you writing in the early 70s? I mean, you said you were writing songs. What what was it about? What was on your mind? In the early 70s? Yeah, before wow. you got here. What is it? Oh, because wow. you, said, you, said, you said you'd gone from, you know, you, you told me you were writing music in that period. Yeah, well, Mikey and I would write music, but, you know, it was real knuckleheady shit. I mean, there was no words. No words? No words. No, okay. Everything was instrumental. None of us, neither of us had the guts to sing because we were playing talent shows. Gotcha. You know, okay. before our fifth and sixth grade classes. Okay, I see, yes. So you wouldn't want so to So we caught. would rent the amp from the Caldwell Studio of Music. We'd both plug into the same amp. Okay. And we would play, you know, three or four chord progressions, you know, just hammering it out. And yeah. our music teacher was great. I had I probably one of the best music teachers in grammar school. Uh-huh. Uh, who was the first Southerner I ever met? Okay, Mrs. Hendon, she was from Texas, um, and she was very supportive of Mike and I. She was like, you know, write your own songs. Okay. I want you to come to the talent show with your own material. Uh-huh. She sure. was cool. She spent a whole week um, analyzing um, Magical Mystery Tour. She wanted us to understand the subtleties of the Beatles. <laughs> and she wanted us to understand what Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds meant. And she got fired. <laughs> <laughs> Very informative teacher. <laughs> but, you know, she got fired. And we were all pissed. Yeah. Yeah, I've been in that situation. You know, it's the one, the one that actually gave up the information is the one they wanted out. Um, so, so then by the end of the late, so now are, what are you writing then with Dwight? What's going on here? You start are you writing so now you say you're writing song, writing music again once you're yeah. back in the ones. And what is this about? What well, with Dwight, it's you know, it's to me. I think what I'm personally discovering is uh, progressions mm -hmm. you know my my writing has always come less from a theoretical point of view than from an ear mm -hmm. point yeah. of view um, you know I tend to like like you know it's like building blocks I, I, I have a chord I like a voicing mm-hmm I see where that can go, you know, I'll spend a half hour figuring out where that particular lovely chord can go to. Okay. And then I like that second chord. So I would be, I think in those days I was, uh, I was experimenting with, um, I had been playing long enough that I was bored mm -hmm. with, you know, D, C, G, A, you know, basic mi major seventh, mm -hmm. minor seventh formation. So I was, I was deliberately playing with where my hand mm -hmm. could go and how it could fret, mm -hmm. um, and that that laid the groundwork for how I even think today. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm constantly looking for a chord I don't understand, uh -huh. and in those days. I was beginning to experiment with that, and like always, I would come with a progression, and Dwight would play over it. Mm -hmm. You know. Wow. So and then, uh, so you were playing. That was in, what's that now? This is all late seventies, or is it in the eighties here? What did we? Uh, this about? is seventy nine, eighty. What, what did you notice about the music in New Orleans at that period? The other, the other music that was going on. 
what I noticed about it was um, first how integrated it was with society mm -hmm. because it wasn't quite that way where I came from mm -hmm. there were music people you know who sort of went and sought out music mm -hmm. but when I you know I'll never forget one night I was at Tipitina's watching um, I can't remember who even it was at this point but I, I ran into an architecture professor you know, one of my professors, and he was like, oh, I'm glad to see you at Tipitina's, you know. <laughs> and suddenly it was like, you know, you realize that this culture, sort of, the sun is music and all the planets go around it. <laughs> right. And it's a very Copernican view, and it's, it's beautiful, because uh, that, to me, was so encouraging. I used to go to Tyler's all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'd see Astral Project. I loved Astral Project, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. And yeah. uh, I would see James Rivers, um, you know, because you could have oysters and you know sit there and watch incredible players. You know, I, I remember watching. It's hard to believe that I'm friends with James Singleton now. Yeah, you know, it's like I can't believe he even talks to me. Yeah, I used I to watch him play love, love so much, time. and <laughs> you know, in those days and. Uh, you know, it was just incredible watching him fret the bass, and, uh, and you know, so those those were. Um, I realized that in this place, there wasn't a sort of a black and white relationship with music, mm -hmm. which really thrilled me. Mm -hmm. That music was. You know, integral to, you know, and I began to see how important Mardi Gras was to the music scene. Mm -hmm. I began to see how important Jazz Fest was, mm -hmm. you know, and how these festivals, these times of year sort of brought everybody together and mm -hmm. sort of re-emphasized the fact that, you know, music is really it. You know, it's the, it's the unifying force. When I showed up, the first time I had an awareness of you around town, I showed up here around 1989, and uh, for one reason or another, let me see here, because I, I got to be playing music real quick, but I was aware of Cafe Brazil. It was very, very early on. You were in there playing with Tribe Nunzio. So right. how did that come about, that grouping of people, which actually turned out to be all over the place for I mean, the people? Yeah, that were yeah, all, yeah. all over the scene for a while. Well, it involves Dwight. Okay. And um, you know, Dwight and I were sort of tired of playing. Uh, you know, we wanted to create more of an ensemble mm -hmm. as opposed to just two cats. Mm -hmm. You know, begging in the French Quarter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, Dwight found an ad in the music school at Tulane that simply said. I play bass. What do you play? Mm -hmm. And uh, we responded, and this this cat Paul Armstrong mm -hmm. showed up. And Paul um, and Dwight and I played with a variety of people, mm -hmm. but we formed a very strong core. Mm -hmm. Paul and Dwight and I. Paul was a remarkable bass player. He's from the Bronx. 
Um, so everyone's from the Northeast. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> somehow, well, it gets even deeper than that shit. It's coming, baby. But uh, yeah, Paul. Um, Paul was incredible. He played a fretless precision. He was a remarkable musician. He was schooled in Indian uh, rhythms. Oh wow! Uh, so we were playing in you know seven eight. 11 8 you know crazy you know like all these incredible rhythms and he brought this polyrhythmic structure to uh to our play and uh was also such a cool cat really earnest sweet his wife was a geologist and so they had moved here sort of to stay um, and out of that, Dwight and I, um, Dwight and I had sort of a falling out. Oh, really? After a while, yeah, yeah. We were uh, we were making the transition to vocals. Okay. You know, the band was moving into the vocal range, uh. and uh, I had the opinion that Dwight didn't have such a great singing voice. Okay. You know, and uh, I, one night I stated it. I was like, you know, uh-huh. I think, you know, I'm not saying I can sing, but I'm saying you really can't sing so well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I still hold true to that point of view. Uh-huh. But it, it it ruffled his feathers, and uh, he sort of, I think he'd had enough. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, he was such a free spirit that. I think also what was happening is the the regime of the band, of practicing, of me finding that band again. You know, just no. like I told you I had when I was a kid, where you really had to rehearse and really had to practice mm-hmm. before you got on stage. Um, that was he did he wasn't into that. Didn't mm-hmm. he didn't dig it. So Paul and I, you know, had all this this body of work that we had written, and uh, um, we ended up meeting uh, Damon mm-hmm. and Vernon and Nicky Sonsenbach through Nicky Sonsenbach uh, wow this is interesting I didn't know Nick and I had no idea this is all comes through Nicky okay Nick go yeah Nick, Nick Nick and I met through a cat that Paul and I were playing with named Tommy Mashler Tommy was a carpenter that I was working mm-hmm. with in those days and also a drummer um and he had played in a lot of like underground bands in the 70s and 80s in New Orleans. He's a good drummer. He knew Nick, and, and Paul and I started to play with Nick. And then Nick, who had been in Waka Waka, with, which was a ska band, okay. with uh, Damon Vernon and this guy named Sal Canatello, who was in a band called Auntie Vera and Uncle Stan, Uncle Stan and Auntie Vera. And all. You know, he, Sal was a great sort of ska singer songwriter but Vernon and Damon were looking to do something else and Nicky brought them in to meet Paul and I Nick was playing piano or he was so, playing sax, or sax. He, was he, was playing still playing he was playing tenor in the band okay yeah, interesting he was playing tenor and then we just started uh, we got a gig mm-hmm. before we even know it we were playing we got a gig to play the Bose Arts Ball <laughs> At uh, wow. the architecture school yeah, in Tulane. Yeah, I've done that gig. And, <laughs> and uh, there I was. At the time, I was working at the school because at that point in yeah. time, I graduated mm-hmm. from.
from Tulane, and uh, I'd done, you know, bumped around on a couple of jobs, but I was working at the school, running the shop, uh, teaching furniture design, and uh, teaching. Uh, I was working as a TA for uh, for an architectural professor. Mm -hmm. um, so I got. That's how one of the reasons I got this gig. So we got this gig at the Beaux Arts Ball, and uh, it was fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had them. I mean, we had them just going nuts. Okay. It was a very cool band. And Paul and I were writing like really sort of Talking Heads inspired songs with very funky sort of you know rhythmic, uh, odd rhythmic patterns and. Uh, very cool. Vo I was the lead vocalist. Oh, really? You yeah, I was the lead vocalist uh, at that time. And what, and what were these songs about? <sighs> they were about all kinds of things. Paul was a very spiritual cat. Is a very spiritual cat. Uh -huh. Still a friend of mine. Um, so a lot of his songs were so his attempts to bring spirituality, not in a heavy-handed way, mm -hmm. in, into the conversation. He wanted people to, like, rise up, mm -hmm. celebrate, you know, be more intuitive. Uh -huh. And they weren't clumsy. They weren't, like, new-agey in any... You know, right. they were very sexual, very beautiful. And he had a very good way of sort of saying, what we're doing ain't right, let's do it better. Okay. Let's be cooler about uh -huh. this. Uh -huh. So they were about that. Uh -huh. You know, a lot of the songs were about that. Okay. Uh -huh. And then I started to, you know, write more lyric-driven songs. And at that point, I was falling in love with Maria, was, uh -huh. you know. My wife of 23 years. Oh, wow. Uh -huh. So a lot of the songs were about that. Uh -huh. You know, I very much believe in, you know, whatever I'm writing about um, having something to do with where I am. Yeah. Not an abstract thing. Yeah. And uh, it was very cool. I mean, it was a very cool band. Uh, Damon and Vernon brought an entirely different energy to it because uh -huh. rather than playing with jazzers and people who were like, you know, you know, really arty, they were visceral. Uh huh. And suddenly I saw, like, holy shit, you know, this can captivate people. This can make people dance. Mm -hmm. They knew how to make people dance. And people were catching on. You played the Beaux Arts Ball, and people were. You played the Beaux Arts Ball, people were catching on. You know, it was like very sort of nerve wracking for me to get up in front of all these people that I worked with oh, and yeah. taught uh -huh. and get out there and, you know, perform uh -huh. so that was extremely good for me to sort of like cast off fear uh -huh. anxiety you know all of these you know, silly things that ground you uh, and keep you from uh, you know from just gaining more and more confidence and what year was this this was probably 80 81 81 no no okay. no 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 I'm sorry. This was 85 or 86. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, maybe 87, mm -hmm. somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. So, uh, let's see, Damon, was he from you? Damon's from Buffalo, Northeast. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Vernon's from here. Vernon's from here. Okay, wow, okay, interesting. All right. So, uh, let's see, this Tribe Nunzio. I see, I remember that that was how I first remembered you. And really what I remember about Tribe Nunzio, I mean, as far as the sound, like I remember it, I probably like it a lot more now. When I was young, it wasn't that I didn't like it. I just kind of, it's like a lot of echo and a lot of things. Like it, it was really too creative for me. I was, whatever. I was here for R&B purposes, strictly, and, uh, and you know, booze purposes. Sure. So it was kind of interesting. But I loved the scene because there was cool people hanging around. I was actually trying to understand. I was like, how did they manage to get themselves together? But what was it like getting gigs at that point in New Orleans? How did that work? Well, Tribe, well, let's put an important piece in the puzzle. That's Holden yeah. Miller. Yeah, good. I didn't want to have to force the issue. So. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, interestingly, I think what happened was I um, we had met Holden because Vernon and Damon knew Holden from the Continental Drifters. She was a background singer from the really? original Continental Drifters, ah. which had Johnny Allen as a lead singer. Okay. Johnny Ray Allen was a lead singer. Okay. And Damon was a drummer, Vernon was a bass player, you know, and uh, Holden uh, was in that band. And I knew she was around, we had met, and uh, I had contacted her once and she came over and sang and she was like, well, you know, you all got your own thing going on, I don't know. And then after the Beaux-Arts thing, a couple other things, um, it was sort of decided that I didn't have the shit to be the front guy. But it didn't ruffle your feathers. No, no. In fact, it, it didn't ruffle my feathers at all because um, I don't think that's the sky I was painting myself into okay. anyway. Uh, okay, you know. Uh -huh. I mean, it was as I said before. It was very, very good to get me over fear and anxiety. However, you know, I am a realist. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> so Holden had the charisma. She had the body language. She had the, you know, the shit to get out in front My of her. My God, I couldn't believe people the way they used to talk about her when I got here. It was unbelievable. I mean, it was. I was, the way people talked about that woman was yeah. unbelievable. It was incredible. I mean, yeah, I was yeah. like, wow. Yeah, yeah. Strange. I mean, I thought, well, clearly, you know, she's sensuous blonde, and she walks around with a dog, and I'm young. So I was like, well, she's hot, but I can't work out what the religion is here, you know? <laughs> it's <quite> religious. <laughs> I think the religion of Holden, first of all, she agreed to come and sing with us, and then, you know, Paul and I started rewriting material to go through her. Uh -huh. You know, suddenly, you know, it was very conscious that, you know, there's a woman singing. Right. You know, we can't, you know, we have to sort of, uh, we have to, you know, change the way we write. Mm. Not change, but we have to be sensitive mm. to the fact that there's a woman singing these songs. But the religion of Holden was that, you know, Holden was still everything a hippie was supposed to be. That's what it was. You know, right. and in the most sincere way. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing phony about that woman. Right, right, right. And I think what what drew people to her was her her ability to sort of get you, listen to you, you know, to be sort of interested in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then the freedom uh, to do her incredible stage performances, mm -hmm. her dancing, her her outfits, her vibe right. you know, on stage. She had such, you know, such confidence and um, humor 
mm-hmm. on stage that uh, you know she was a magnet and what was great about it is that we got to develop this sound uh, and this sort of drive that that you know just supported her and in a lot of ways was ancillary to her yeah you know I mean a lot of times she just grooved and danced and we and we rolled mm-hmm. but I mean getting gigs those days I mean the way Tribe Nunzio started was at the economy which is how I met Brendan oh, okay interesting now where what was the economy the economy was a bar slash cafe restaurant um, that was a Gerard and Commerce. Okay. Um, Brendan and his partner Tim, who were both from New Jersey, back to the Northeast. Jonathan, I'm yeah, sorry. It's okay. I don't mind. It's fascinating. Timmy, <laughs> Timmy and Brendan had this club. And oh. basically, it was a, uh, you know, it was a, a, a little joint where on the weekends, Tim, who was a great chef, would cook. Uh, these incredible meals mm-hmm. that you know he insisted nothing cost more than six bucks a plate, uh-huh. and he was a fine chef. Uh, and then we, you know, Tribe Nunzio had played a couple of fraternity gigs, a couple of Tulane things. There used to be a lot of that back then. Yeah, it was a lot of that back then. You know, we had probably played at Tupelo's, which was Jed's Jed's morphed into Tupelo's. We had probably played at uh, a couple of small clubs, nothing big. But Brendan, somehow, I I think I met Brendan. I know how I met Brendan. Um, Marie and I had... uh, I had gone back to New Jersey for Christmas. Marie and I had just hooked up. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I got back New Year's Eve and we decided to go out together and we heard about this place, The Economy. We went to The Economy and it was closed, mm-hmm. except Brendan and Timmy were there mm-hmm. and they let Marie and I in. Wow. wow. And we s- probably spent two or three hours just drinking with them uh-huh. like you know, had this incredibly wonderful night. Right. And I told Brendan I had a band and you know, uh-huh. so we started playing gigs at The Economy. Okay. And there were no cover gigs Saturday night, and you know, two hundred people, three hundred people, just wow. fucking packed this club. That's no bigger than this apartment. Uh huh. Amazing. So we did block parties, and you know, uh, and it started to be a scene. And it still looked like the spellcaster. <laughs> Very much like that. Very much like that. Hot, sweaty. Yeah. You know, you can't turn. Yeah. I would have because I had a car. I'd have to run a set break to Schwegman's and buy beer because they'd run out of beer. Right. Right. I would have to go buy like tons of Schaefer. They'd give me like a hundred bucks and say, "Just buy as much Schaefer as you can." And I'd drive back, and you know, we'd pack it into the cooler, and then. You know, it would be like the scene to get paid at the end of the night, but... Um, the Schaefer becomes a uh, theme, I think. It's, <laughs> yeah. It is the one you're to have when you're having more than one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, we, uh, we had some freaking great times at the economy, and Brendan was just enamored with the whole thing. He loved it, and uh, Timmy and I and Brendan became great friends, and Pat... Cronin, Cronin was living next door with Joycey, his uh, his girlfriend. Where was Pat from? Pat's from Boston. 
all sort of minorities. Well, you know, I never but through I Galveston, uh -huh. he had come back to New Orleans, and uh, he, you know, he hit with Tribe Nunzio. He loved it, um, and we became friends. And then we started like having jams at the original Warehouse Cafe, which was where Vix was. So he was playing in Tribe Nunzio too. Pat, no, no, that is he. No, he would stage dive. Yeah, okay, he'd like walk like through the crowd, stone drunk, and you know, with a twenty-six inch, uh, you know. Uh, kick drum in his hands. Okay, yeah, yeah, right, right. right <laughs> Strapped to his skinny yeah. ass, half naked. <laughs> boom, boom, just beating the fuck out of the thing. And I, I thought he was fucking fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So I met Pat, and we became really good friends. Uh -huh. So that whole scene happened, and then. Uh, How did you get this name, Tribe Nunzio? What is? The name is really stupid, and uh, we, you know, like any name. Yeah. Uh, tribe, because it unites people. You know, we're a group tribe. Uh -huh. And then Nunzio was a friend of mine. When I was a kid, I had a friend named Nunzio. And I said it once at rehearsal, and everybody just cracked up. And they're like, that's it. Just call it Tribe Nunzio. <laughs> you know, it has no meaning. There's no depth. It's just stupid. <laughs> it's kind of looked good in black and white. Oh, yeah, yeah. See, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, know, the, I know that naming psychology. <laughs> but then what happened was... Um, Ade had moved his coffee shop from Governor Nichols to Charter Street. He I didn't know it was on Governor Nichols. Yeah, he had, a, he had, a, he had a, a coffee shop called Until Waiting Fills. Really? Yeah, and Dwight and I had played for Ade. He was having music in there? Yes. Already? Yes. In his coffee shop on yeah. Governor Nichols. We're on Governor Nichols. Oh, man. Jeez. You know? Don't remember. I can't even remember now. Yeah. But I met Ade, uh, with Dwight and I would play in, in To Waiting Phil's, and you know, Ade and I instantly hit it off, and then he and Renee, I don't know if you remember Renee, his wife, Ade was uh, married girlfriend, I, I don't know sort if remember. Yes, no, 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 I know exactly who we're talking about, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. She, she, uh, she and he then opened Cafe Brazil okay. on Frenchman. And it was a coffee shop. Mm, yeah. It was an espresso bar. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there was an office on the second floor, mm -hmm. and there was a little stage underneath the office mm -hmm. in the corner. Um, and uh, he came to the economy one night. I remember seeing him standing there. And then he, he always called me, he still he just calls me Treffinger. <laughs> <laughs> Treffinger. Yes, I did. He goes, I want you to play Cafe Brazil. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, Frenchman Street needs, needs some fucking daylight, man. Because at that time, there was Snug Harbor. Right. There was the Dream Palace, which only opened for radiator shows. Yeah. And a couple of other shows in between. That was it. And could never be said to be providing daylight. That's for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, there was nothing on Frenchman yeah. Street. Absolutely yeah. nothing. I mean, yeah. it was, you know, it was like the Apple Barrel. Uh, and everything else was either abandoned or fucked up or like yeah. an old antique store. The Faubourg Center was an old antique store. Uh, DBA was the Marigny Theater mm -hmm. and Bicycle Mike's on the other side. Um, you know, there was nothing going on. Yeah. Uh, Swiss Confectionery Bakery was down there. This is like 1989 now, right? right yeah, 1989. Sorry when I show up, which is right. what it looked like. Right when you show picture. up. So Ade booked us at Cafe Brazil, and you know, it was like the first time playing this incredibly loud room. Like, fucking, like, <laughs> Jesus! You know? 
And our day was, you know, like nobody showed up. It was nothing like an economy gig. Quite frankly, my, my perception of you as being an echo of this band with all oh, the reverb echo Brazil. probably has to do with no, the you know, My Most of my hearing loss comes from that club. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, mine too, I think. In any case, um, are we going too long here? No, not at all. I, you, I got five hours of Jimbo up on my site. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna keep you. You can get done when you're when you whenever you want. You know, it's really it's up to you. You talk about whatever you want. All right. Yeah, all right. <laughs> um, so anyway, we played a gig at Cafe Brazil, and it basically was you know we played well, but you know soon came to realize that you needed people in this fucking place mm -hmm. to to make it sound good or to make it feel good. And there was almost no one there. I mean, you know, maybe forty people, thirty, forty people. And I'll never forget at the end of the night, you know, over a coffee that I didn't need or didn't want because it was, you know, 12 o'clock, 12.30 mm -hmm. at night. I'm like, Ade, you just got to sell booze. And Renee was like, you know, Ade, I think we can. And Ade was dead set against it because he had had a drinking problem. Yeah, I used to talk about it all the time. Yeah, when he came to the U.S. from Brazil and was living in Washington and was a construction worker in Washington, D.C., yeah. he had had like a two-case-of-beer-a-day habit. Yeah. So he was, you know, rightfully concerned about, you know, turning a business into a bar room and whether or not he could avoid the temptation of drink. And Renee convinced him that he could. Mm -hmm. She basically said, you can do it. You should. Um, this is going to be important to our business. And within a couple of weeks, the signs were on the door. You know, this establishment is applied to the city for mm -hmm. a liquor license. And in those days, it was wide open. You could still get liquor licenses very easily. Mm -hmm. So um, we maybe played one more gig as a coffee shop. And then the first night, we played one. You know, he had a liquor. At that point, I think it was cabaret. So I don't think he could sell hard liquor, but beer and wine he could sell. I think he made like five grand. <laughs> And, you know, at the end, Trafico, I love you! Ah! How about a beer? The whole thing was totally out of me because we were already playing. Mean, I was playing there with, like, people shortly after that because I did that whole that stints with Willie Green and Mike Ward and right. things like that. And it was like, you'd go in there and just, it was unbelievable how many people there were milling around that building and in the street yeah. and everything. Oh, like, no, the, the, the Mardi Gras we played... My God, we used to play, you know, have a standing gig there, Lundigra. We wouldn't go on till midnight. Mm -hmm. And we'd play till five in the morning. 